Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. As soon as you stop driving for perfection, that's when you excel. Hand me the phone, which they eventually did. I'm going to rely on my training up to that point, fall to my highest level of preparation. And I was confident that as good an outcome as we could get, it was going to happen. Shockingly, I took her advice. And she was shocked by that, which still to this day amazes me. Taking advice from the right people is one of the biggest hacks to getting ahead in life. Emotional intelligence is understanding that emotions are going to drive decisions, number one. And then if you have the intelligence, then you get the tools. Hostage negotiation tools are about steering emotion. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features Chris Voss. You can find him on Instagram and elsewhere at the FBI Negotiator. So look, I wanted to have Chris on the show because... He's a freaking FBI hostage negotiator. This conversation was so completely different than any conversation I've had with anybody on the planet. It was absolutely fascinating to step into Chris's world of hostage negotiating. Before we get into this episode, I want to remind you that my 2019 mastermind is filling up quickly in terms of the applications rolling in. Remember, this is on a first-come, first-serve basis for getting your application in line. I do go through all of them, and I look for the best fits, and then I set up a phone call to see if it's a great fit between you, me, and the existing group. So if you are at all interested, go to workhardplayhardpodcast.com forward slash mastermind. So if you're a six or seven-figure entrepreneur who wants to 10x their lives through play, tribe, and amazing experiences around the world, then this may be the mastermind for you. So this year, uh, 2019, actually, we're going to be doing one domestic and two international locations that I promise you will be mind-blowing. The mastermind is the fastest way that I know of to 10x your business, up-level your tribe, and get a clear path to grow your business and your relationships to the next level. So if you're interested, go to workhardplayhardpodcast.com forward slash mastermind and fill out the mastermind. So what we'll do is we'll put you into a group of high-level achievers where everybody is at your level or higher. You'll be in three different masterminds throughout the year, going to three different locations and become a part of what I call experiential learning. So I learned my best by doing cool things with cool people and not in the back of a Holiday Inn conference room. So I redesigned the entire mastermind concept and made it a fully immersive experience. I made the long conference room tables with the mints and the water all disappear. So if you're even curious at all, go to workhardplayhardpodcast.com forward slash mastermind and click apply. Okay, in this conversation with Chris, we cover what he talked about in the car on the way over to his first bank robbery with hostages, 
What exactly is going on behind the scenes during a hostage negotiation? You will not believe all the things that are happening. And we also talked about the play part of his life. What are the things that he does to have fun? And he has fun. Let me tell you, he's a fun guy. So you can find him on the socials at the FBI negotiator. Be sure to take a screenshot of this episode, share it on the socials, and remember to tag me and the FBI negotiator and let us know what you thought. If this is your first time here and you have not subscribed, just say, hey, Siri, subscribe to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation I had with Chris Voss. Chris, welcome to the show. My pleasure to be here. Thanks, man. You know what? I got to tell you something. I have been looking forward to this for some time. I was hanging out with my good, my good buddy, Lewis Howes in Greece, and we were chatting about you over the summer. And he's like, dude, you got to have him on your show. So here you are. Lewis is a rock star. So I'm glad that he recommended me. Yeah, I'm happy <laughs> to be here. All right. So thanks for making the time. I'd like to talk just a little bit about you and your background. So I know you're from a small town and I think a a good jumping off place would be to talk about where you're from. Maybe you can kind of describe for us what the kind of things that you did with your parents, let's say when you were, you know, five to 10 years old in Mount Pleasant, Iowa. Yeah, man. Well, my father was an entrepreneur blue-collar, figure-it-out kind of guy. Um, so as far back as I can, I can remember, I, I remember working for the guy and, you know, being given tasks, you know, hard-working uh, man, figure it out. Figure it out on your own, which is, you know, what an entrepreneur's got to do. It's got to get done. You got to figure out how to do it. So I can, you know, I grew up in a very strong work ethic and that was kind of it. Small-town Iowa, uh, blue-collar, middle-class, Get dirty, get it done. <laughs> get dirty and get it done. So when you were in, let's say, Mount Pleasant High School in the 70s, what did you think you were going to be? You know, I decided I wanted to be in law enforcement when I was in my mid-teens. I didn't really know. I saw a movie. You know, I was inspired by this movie. It was, and it, you know, and it's almost embarrassing to say the name of the movie, but the movie was The Super Cops. It was about <laughs> two New York City police officers They were just like wildly creative guys that had an absolute ball and put a lot of bad guys in jail. You know, they worked in Bed-Stuy back when Bed-Stuy was a ridiculously dangerous place. And the community loved them because no matter how bad the community is, still it's probably mostly good people. And they had a ball. They put a lot of bad guys in jail and, and... and the community loved them. I just thought that was cool. They were really creative. You know, it's funny. I grew up in Queens in New York and uh, my first car was stolen and I got a call from the bed police station. They found it and I had to go there to pick it up. So, and what was left of it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you, you know, this was back in, I'm 52 and this was, you know, I was 16 back then. So it was a long time ago. And I remember they had them uh, handcuffed to a, uh, you know, those, uh, radiators and they had him handcuffed to a radiator and the guy's screaming, my hands burning and he's taking the billy club and just banging it against the radiator saying, shut up. I'll talk to you when I'll talk. You know what I mean? It was, it was just a different, (laughs) it was a different time. 
It, <laughs> that was a harsh interrogation technique, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, apparently. Okay, so let's move forward to uh, to college. You graduated Iowa State, and you you made the decision to become a police officer. Can you tell me the story of why you decided to be a police officer, and how did you wind up choosing Kansas City? Yeah, well, you know, I I, I just loved the idea of doing something um, that was gonna that was gonna be good and satisfying that that I would really enjoy. I mean, I always. I figured when I got done with my law enforcement career, I would have my own business. But, you know, I wanted to do law enforcement first. I, you know, there was something about it that just on a lot of levels really appealed to me. So I'm in the Midwest. I didn't really know what city to go to. I'm, I'm from a town of 7,000 people. Like we had six stoplights in my town. And so I'm kind of pulling people in the area, you know, because I'm sort of equidistant from Chicago, Kansas City and St. Louis. They're all anywhere from three, three to six hours away. And the biggest thing that struck me about Chicago was it was cold in the wintertime. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I yeah. could, as a kid, we got a Chicago radio station. It was one of the super stations way back when. And I can just remember in the middle of winter having them go on the radio and saying, like, it is so bitter cold out here. Don't go outside because it's life-threatening cold. And I remember thinking, like, well, the only people that got to be outside in this kind of weather are the cops and the firemen. And I'm not sure <laughs> I want to be out in that. Hearing about Kansas City, everybody, I'd never been there. Everybody that had been there raved about it as a town. And so how hard could it be? I, 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 my first trip down there was to apply for the police department. I already made up my mind I was going to try Kansas City out. It ended up being a great place to be for about three years. All right. So now you're a police officer. So what what led you to making the decision to become after you went from uh, being a police officer, you moved on to becoming an FBI agent. Why an FBI agent say over secret service? Cause I didn't know any better. <laughs> <laughs> Would you have made a different decision now? No, I mean, it was perfect. I mean, it was, it, it, the stars lined up perfectly. Um, my father finally, after having paid for a college degree, and then I turn around and I go out and get a job that doesn't require one. He reconciled himself to the fact that I was going to be in law enforcement. And so he figured do something more than be a local cop, which is, which is a wonderful thing to do. I mean, it, it, it disparages that profession. Um, I would have been completely happy had I stayed in KCMO. But so he had a buddy who was a Secret Service agent. He, he, and I didn't know one federal uh, law enforcement organization from another. And I talked to this guy on the phone and he said, I traveled all over the world on behalf of the Secret Service. And I went, really? Because I, I grew up in Iowa. I mean, I'd, I'd seen Canada. That was the extent of my international mm -hmm. travels. Mm -hmm. And the idea that somebody was going to pay me to travel all over the world, I thought, that's cool. And to, to my very good luck, the Secret Service was not hiring. The FBI was. They had just started a big hiring push. And 10 months later, I was in the FBI. All right. So now you're in the FBI. You find yourself in Pittsburgh. And if I did my homework right, you were in the SWAT division of the FBI in Pittsburgh. Did I get that right? Well, I was on a SWAT team and, and it was an additional duty. Like more, there's about, you can be an agent and have additional duties. If you don't want to go into management, you can specialize. If, if Whatever you think is like kind of cool that you want to get in, get into. And 
It's principally SWAT uh, negotiation bombs, <laughs> if you will, and uh, uh, undercover. And they're each kind of a different animal. And so you have a tendency to drift more towards one or the other because it might be how you're wired. Now, I initially, while I was an investigator during the day, I got on the SWAT team in Pittsburgh, and I loved it and would have stayed with it, you know, if, if the universe hadn't, fate hadn't taken me another direction. But I was on a SWAT team in Pittsburgh, and it was great. I loved it. So now you're, you're in the FBI, things are, things are coming along and you're, you're like, you know what? I think I want to be a hostage negotiator. Can you, (laughs) can you walk me through the conversation you had with Amy when you asked her if you could be a hostage negotiator? Oh yeah, man. I'm telling you, Amy, Amy was in the same, we're both in a terrorism branch in New York. I was on a, I was on a domestic terrorist squad at the time. Um, and she was on an international squad. You know, and I kind of went up to her in the office one day. She's sitting at her desk and just kind of went, ta-da! <laughs> Here I am! And she was just thoroughly unimpressed and kind of looked down her nose at me. And she she knew me from being in the branch, and she knew I was an ex-cop. And she's like, all right, so I know you're a cop. We're on a negotiation team with the police department. I'm like, No. And she said, okay, well, you got any experience in this in any way, shape, or form? I'm like, no. She said, do you got any advanced, any degrees in psychology? Have you got any educational background? And I said, no. <laughs> she said, go away. Everybody wants to be a hostage negotiator. Everybody thinks it's easy. Everybody wants a T-shirt. It sounds sexy. Go away. You're eminently unqualified. <laughs> you know, I probably stamped my feet at the time like a little kid. I'm like, uh, come on. I, there's got to be something I could do. And she says, you know what? There is. Go volunteer on a suicide hotline now. You t- until you've done that, go away. Stop bothering me. Shockingly, I took her advice. And she was shocked by that, which still to the, this day amazes me. Taking advice from the right people is one of the biggest hacks to getting ahead in life. And I came back to her and I said, you know, hey, I just wanted to know I've been volunteering for about five months. And she's like, you're kidding. No, I'm not kidding. It's what you told me to do, right? She said, I tell everybody to do that. Nobody does it. And that was that was it, man. That, that was that was a that was a critical point. That was the hack. That was I leaped in front of five other people to get on the negotiation team because of that. So you your philosophy is get good at the basics first, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Thousand percent. That's that's the philosophy of every master practitioner on the planet. Mm-hmm. Where do you think that mindset came from? Parents? Wow, probably. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, maybe it's just from I never thought of myself as gifted or smart in any way. So you gotta you got I guess you gotta master the fundamentals if you want to get ahead. If you're not if you're not Gifted with a high IQ, which now the more I read, the more I see that a complete and utter fiction. And it really is mastering the basics for everyone that's ever gotten ahead. But oh, yeah, you man. a kid growing up in Iowa, you don't know that. Yeah. Wax on, wax off, right? <laughs> yeah. Karate kid. Yes, yeah. Sir. All right. So now, now Amy gives you the position as a hostage negotiator because she obviously did the homework that she asked you to do. You impressed her enough. Starts out, it's part-time, 
Before long, you're working your way through the ranks. You're in charge of the whole team. And then Charlie comes in and he says, hey, Chase Manhattan Bank has a robbery. There's hostages. Let's go. What was going through your mind in the car on the way over to that? Well, this is cool. (laughs) (laughs) How much is this rock? (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And are you nervous? You know, I probably was because, I mean, from the moment that Charlie said, let's go, and I had an interview that day that I had to hand off to somebody else, to the moment that we arrived at the bank and, and we realized without it, we'd inadvertently driven to inside the perimeter and suddenly we're like low crawling from the car to the, <laughs> to the command post. Yeah. Uh, but from the moment we decided to go to the moment we're low crawling to the command post, I really don't have much of a memory of that ride at all. So I must have just really been excited. Okay. So let's dig in a little bit to a few of the lessons that people can learn, you know, during that negotiation at that robbery. And people can apply to their own business, particularly from a leadership perspective. So can you... First, maybe set the stage and walk us through what that situation was like from your command tent to communicating with the hostages and the bad guys. What, what was that like? Overall, it was fairly chaotic, but the um, commander of the NYPD's negotiation team was there, a guy named Hugh McGowan, brilliant guy, great leader. And he was cool. I mean, he, he, was, he was unfazed. He was unrattled. I mean, he, he's a guy, his natural voice was the late night FM DJ's voice, a very soothing, calm kind of guy. And so I can remember just between Hughes' guidance to all of us, and then also I felt I was ready. I mean, I felt I I knew the process. I believed in a process that we had, the structure that we had, plus I practiced. I got, you know, I got my practice hours in. So I was ready to rock and roll. I had I had a process that I felt comfortable with that gave us not a guarantee of success, but a guarantee of our best chance of success, which is all you can ever ask for. As soon as you stop striving for perfection, that's when you excel. And then bang, you know, hand me the phone, which they eventually did. I'm going to rely on my training up to that point, fall to my highest level of preparation. And I I was confident that as good an outcome as we could get, it was going to happen. I love that. Fall to your, I'm writing this down, fall to your highest level of preparation. What did practice and training look like for you for this? Well, it was, the reassuring thing for me was having spent all that time on a suicide hotline and gotten used to the the magic that what we now refer to as emotional intelligence, the application of it, you know, the stunning turnarounds that you could get in very short periods of time. Then I had that hotline time, and, and I rolled down to the negotiation training at the FBI Academy Quantico, and they started playing actual tapes of actual negotiations for us. And I remember literally sitting there thinking, like, I've been doing this for two years. I just didn't have a SWAT team outside. Mm. So I was already I was already very satisfied that I could hear the nuances from practice. So you know, I felt good about my process. And I and I did really good at the in the training because I was prepared. I'd played in preseason. And so then and then I was continuing to volunteer on a hotline at the time. 
so I, you know, I kept, I kept my practice level up. I, I, you know, I had all my practice reps and when they got ready to hand me the phone, I'm just like, dude, let me just fall back into what I've been practicing and it'll be good. Do you have to have a certain temperament for this? And do you think that, you know, you were the candidate who has the temperament or is this something that can be trained in anybody, even, you know, super hyper type A people? You only need one of two characteristics and you don't need both. And if you put the two of them together, then you're going to nail it. The first characteristic is openness to learning. So you just got to be open to learning because everybody's got it in them. Everybody's got the basic wiring. It just has, hasn't been nurtured. I think my level of openness is very high. And it helps if you're a hard worker. I've run across some superstar negotiators that didn't rate particularly high on the openness characteristics, but they were just worked at it so relentlessly. They didn't have to be fast at learning. They just worked at learning really hard and, and it, and it, uh, they got it. So you, you don't, you don't have to, that, that's all it takes. Be, be open to learning and be willing to, to work hard. And then you can, you can nail it. You can master it. Like I mean, and that's pretty much any skill out there that's skill based. So you did a lot of work, you said, on the suicide hotline. You know, in the news, we see a lot more suicides now. You know, uh, Kate Spade, Anthony Bourdain, the list is going on and on. Is, is there more of it happening now or is it just becoming more publicized? Or what's your sort of thoughts on the fact that it's in the news as much as it is lately? I heard a great quote, and I wish I could tell you who said it the other day. He said, look at the data, not the headlines. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Because, you know, the news's job is to funnel us, to, to aggregate the bad news and then get to the sexiest stuff as quickly as possible. I don't have data that indicates that there's any more suicides. Mm. There's typically a spike after a high-profile suicide. And the downside of the amount of affection that was poured out for both Anthony Bourdain and Robin Williams is that if you're contemplating suicide and you see all this love that's being generated to your memory, it encourages you to do that. Mm. You know, it's a way to reclaim your life, unfortunately, for the individual. Then the news, the outpouring of love and affection for both of these people and the amount of regard that the world held them in obscures the tragedy of their loved ones and the anger of their loved ones and the abandonment and the feelings of abandonment, isolation, and betrayal that the loved ones go through. And that, that's the real tragedy of the outpouring of support for Anthony Bourdain and Robin Williams because it was so loved globally mm. for good reason that it obscures the tragedy that the family members go through and the anger and the betrayal and the abandonment that they feel as a result. Mm. God, such an interesting perspective. I hadn't thought of that. All right, so I'm going to dig into some of the techniques because I've been using, I've been using some of this shit on my wife over the last couple of days as I've been preparing for this. <laughs> So, so I'm really excited. Hopefully she doesn't listen to this. No, I'm not going to let her. You know, one of the things that I did today in the car, uh, we went out for lunch and uh, I said to her, in, instead of saying, you're right, I said, that's right. And she looked at me and she smiled. <laughs> it was like, it felt good, right? <laughs> so maybe you can kind of unpack why there's a difference between, uh, uh, using the example of my spouse here, 
why is there a difference between between saying to somebody you're right and that's right? Well, unfortunately, you're right is a little bit of a placating response. And some people get wise to that and begin to hear it. And some people have no idea that it's being said to them to placate it. I mean, it's a remarkably effective way to get somebody to stop talking when they won't leave you alone is to just say to them, hey, you're right. And they'll shut up. Now, now if, if your wife caught the difference, she sounds to me like an emotionally intelligent person. She is. But that's right is what people say when they're a thousand percent on board with what somebody just said. I mean, it, it's a signal for breakthrough moments. It's epiphanies. It's empathy bonds. I mean, there's so many crazy, wonderful things that happen as a result in that two millimeter shift, whether you say it or whether you elicit it. I mean, it's so much more unconditional. Your right has is, is got, is got a condition on it. Um, it, it uh, your right is that, well, that's your, that's your perspective. It's one of the things yeah. you do. It's, it's a little condescending, too. Can be. It can't. It absolutely can be. Absolutely can be. All right. So let's, let's get back to the, uh, to the robbery here. So one of the guys that you're on the phone with is avoiding saying I or me. Why was that significant to you as a negotiator? You know, and, and in hindsight, like had no idea that this guy in that bank was exhibiting the uh, behavior of, of many really shrewd CEOs. Like initially, we completely misunderstood it. You know, when we were feeding back information to the Quantico guys at the time, they say, wow, this guy sounds like an inadequate personality. He won't take responsibility for anything. And then we find out after the fact that he is the mastermind. He's the or- orchestrator. He's the manipulator. Um, and, and that's, it's so deceiving. And that was the intent. I mean, the guy didn't want to be pinned down on anything. So he was so confident in his ability to manipulate everybody that he was happy to make other people look like they were in charge because he knew it was a way to keep his influence hidden. And we, we didn't know it at the time. And so many things became clear afterwards. I mean, we talked everybody out. Still used a process on this guy. Still used what we now refer to as tactical empathy. Still, you know, which is not, no, let's talk about your feelings. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, an appreciation for where the brain circuitry, circuitry actually works and then getting behind that circuitry. And so, and that, that's what I've, what, one of the reasons why I still, I, I love this approach to this day because we had the, mo- the most manipulative guys tied for the most manipulative. Another one was a killer and serial killer in the Philippines on a kidnapping. I worked there. Our process worked on the shrewdest, most manipulative person who was doing his best sociopath that was behind the scenes manipulating everybody. So what a lot of people don't know is when you're doing these negotiations, you're not the only one there. There's a lot of other people that are listening for things like this, like pronouns and adjectives and profanity and cliches. Etc. How has that process of gaining that information changed in the year 2018 with all the new technical advancements versus what you had back then? I, you know, I, it really hasn't because uh, communication is, is a fire hydrant of information and it's more than anybody can take in by themselves. That hasn't changed understanding where to look for and the nuances. And the only thing that maybe the tech has given us now is 
we can communicate digitally via, via words if I know how to do it properly. Most people do email and text wrong. But I will use that as supplements to my in-person communication as opposed to substitutes. And then I'll break it down and we'll try to get a little piece at a time. That may be the only difference in tech. But there's still the other side is going to give you a fire hose of information and you're never going to be able to keep up on it by yourself. Back then, we put five people on, on the negotiation team. Now, anything important, we got no less than two on our side. Okay, so the email and text are now different, and you you sort of alluded to how we're doing it all wrong. How, how do you how do you convey tone in an email and text? And what you know, what tips or strategies do you have for people to email or text better? We strategically use apologies a lot. Like if if I gotta if I gotta say something that might be construed as as harsh, I'm gonna do a preemptive emotional intelligence and I'm going to say it's going to seem harsh and then I'm going to say I'm sorry but I'm afraid I can't do that and that's the way I'm going to say no and that's going to land softly mm-hmm. now there was a very specific design in that my you know my warning this is going to seem harsh that's all the more that it was I didn't go on at length then I softened it a little bit more with what we refer to as I messages before I lowered the boom, not after. That's a little bit like warning somebody you're going to punch them instead of punching them and then saying, oh, by the way, that was punch. Mm-hmm. And then those are the only moves that I'm going to make in that email. I'm not going to try to go on because I got to get, I got to give you a chance to respond. And that's really where most people fall down in emails. Like the, it's, it's insane. Everybody hates long emails and everybody writes them. Why are you writing something that you hate to read? <laughs> you know, I, I heard Tony Robbins once at one of the events I went to. He doesn't send any written emails. He only does voice text in an email for reasons like we're discussing. Yeah, well, he's got, he has mastered both the encouraging, smiling and downward inflecting at the same time. That's a master's voice. Like you, you could hear his voice and you know, he's smiling at you. Oh yeah. Yeah. That actually causes a chemical change in your brain that makes you smarter because you're up to 31% mentally more capable in a positive frame of mind. 31%. That's an instantaneous change. You can hear it in somebody's voice. Now the downward inflection simultaneously, which is really hard to do also is reassuring. It makes you sound like you know what you're talking about. So now you're smarter and now you're talking to a guy who feels rock solid to you. And that's that's a master's voice. That's mastery. That is not a novice's skill. That's a master skill. Who's who's a good example of that? He's one of the best that I could think of off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, Bush 43 was pretty good at that. I think that was, despite he's got a little bit higher voice and despite the Texas, how's a guy with a Texas accent get enough votes that he becomes a governor of a state and ultimately president of the United States? And despite the fact that he he made a lot of bad foreign policy choices, you know, he's a, he's a good guy. I'll tell you somebody else, the master communicator, Ronald Reagan, mm. and another master communicator, Bill Clinton. Those guys all have great voices. 
But it's not only just the quality of the voice, it's how you use it, right? It's pacing, it's timing. There's also some inflection points that you practice at different times or you begin to have an appreciation for the impact on the other side. Like I could ask you a question, I could say, you know, after everything I've said to you, does this seem like a good idea to you? Uh, Those words were a question, but the downward inflection was a statement which basically says, if you don't think it's a good idea, you're a bozo. (laughs) Right. But if I say to you, and see, this is a yes-oriented question, which we also, we don't do at all. I don't normally ever ask this question. But if even if I were to give you a yes-oriented question, if I were to say, after everything I've said to you, do you think like this is good for you? You'd then wonder. I would trigger a questioning thought process in your mind and with my upward inflection at the very end would change, completely change how you thought about it. And you're more likely to think about it and give me an honest answer with that subtle change in the inflection at the end of the question. Why is that? Because we're emotional creatures that respond to emotion? Yeah, because emotion drives the way, the, uh, the emotion drives the path of the thoughts through your head. Your limbic system is your circulatory system in your brain of where the thoughts go. And they either go through areas that are largely negative in your amygdala, or they take another route. And I'm going to use my tone of voice first to change where those, what part of your brain is engaged in the thinking about what I just said. Why do you think most people don't do it? Because they believe that the information and the words have more value than the emotion, the pacing, etc. We're so afraid of our own emotions because we're wired to be negative. Our caveman wiring is still there from the very beginning and, and it was necessary for our survival. So the same reason that my approach works is also the same reason that it interferes with our thinking. We're designed to be overly negative. And we become overly negative in this ridiculous idea that we should get emotions out of business decisions because that's an impossibility. There's some really good neuroscience data out there that says that you literally can't make a decision without without the interplay of emotions because you make your decisions based on what you care about, which then by definition makes decision-making an emotional process. But we went through the 60s and the 70s in business thought with the idea that business should be unemotional. And then we went 40 years. I mean, it's only been in the last eight or nine years that emotional intelligence is a valued business asset. That's a really recent change. Yeah, I mean, you know, probably... I don't know, maybe five, eight years ago, the word emotional intelligence didn't exist in vocabulary, you know, in the, in the lexicon, but now it seems like it's everywhere. Right, right. And then it's gotten almost so overused that people don't really understand what it means. It's like value. What's value? It's, a, you know, the overused terminology that people are losing track of. So let's define it. What is emotional intelligence? Uh, emotional intelligence is understanding that emotions are going to drive decisions, number one, and then recognizing how the other side's emotions are driving their decisions. And then if you have the intelligence, then you get the tools. You know, we have the hostage negotiation tools are about steering emotions. You're taking the bad guy on an emotional roller coaster ride, and you're taking him where you want to take him. 
You know, we are. Um, and I wouldn't say it's necessarily an emotional roller coaster ride. We're getting them off the roller coaster mm. right away. Um, you know, one of my favorite analogies that I just, I got, I'm entertained by, you might not be, but I, I all, we often ask people we're training, what's the difference between negotiating with terrorists and negotiating in the business world? Negotiating with terrorists is calmer. Like, what? There isn't a business person I've encountered that can't give me five, six, seven stories of people calling each other names in business negotiations, making threats throughout the course of the negotiations, slamming their hands on the table, refusing to communicate. Hostage negotiators will have maybe one story. I may have done 50 negotiations and I've only had one terrorist get upset and stay upset. Where business people encounter it all the time. So is it your contention that terrorists are calmer than business people, less emotional? <laughs> That's so crazy. Why is that? Because we dial in on emotions right away. Mm. As, soon as, as soon as you feel listened to, you're going to calm down and give me what I want. Or at least I'm going to have my best chance of success. We just thought it just worked really well with terrorists. We didn't know that's the way it is with everybody. So interesting. You mentioned kidnapping. So I want to ask you a couple of quick questions on uh, kidnapping. You worked a, uh, a kidnapping case in Ecuador. You employed a little bit of a different strategy on this one. When the uh, kidnappers would ask you for the money, you'd say, how am I supposed to do that? Why is saying that such an effective strategy? We found out that it was the most deferential and passive-aggressive way to say no without getting people we were really upset about, on the other, uh, worried about getting upset, without getting them upset. People feel in control when you ask them how to do something. And especially with control-oriented negotiators, if I can... If I can, if you're a control-oriented guy and I, I can make you feel in control, you're going to drop your guard and I'm going to walk you wherever I want to walk you to because the only thing you were worried about was feeling like you were in control. Mm. So we're like, all right, let's make them feel like they're in control and we'll have the upper hand. How am I supposed to do that in a really calm manner, not in an accusatory manner, is so powerful that a lot of people that we teach to negotiate, that's the only thing they learn because it works so good. <laughs> you know, the kind of work that you do is so seductive for people. I mean, I put, it, I put a tweet out that I was interviewing. I, I tell you what you've done, just as a side note, I didn't even mention your name to a few people. And I said, I'm doing a, uh, uh, an interview with a uh, FBI hostage negotiator. And they all said, Chris Voss? And I was like, wow, he's really branded himself in this space. So I just wanted to pass that along to you because I know that that probably is going to mean a lot. You did a really great job in that area. But the kind of work you do is super seductive. I mean, you know, you walk into a, a you know, I walk into a party. I tell somebody, I, you know, I've got a podcast. It's, you know, they're interested. That's cool. That's different. Not everybody has one of those. But when you tell somebody what you do, it, it just the questions that must happen what's the most asked question that you get from people 
Yeah, what was, you know, what was the most exciting negotiation? What was the biggest success? What was the worst failure? I mean, you know, what are you most proud of? They, you know, they want to hear crazy, sexy, exciting story. Do you hide yourself in the party and don't tell people what you do or, or what you did? Typically, I love finding out about other people and getting them talking in ways that, that they don't expect to be talking. Mm-hmm. So, and then plus, unfortunately, if you're in a group conversation, <laughs> Nobody knows what else to say after that. Like, if you're the FBI hostage negotiator, then somebody else is like, well, you know, I, I, I sell insurance. What's yeah, all I have to talk about? <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> you got to be careful that it doesn't suck the life out of the room, too. Nobody else wants to say anything. And I, and I hate it when that happened because I dig, I, not only do I love learning about other people, like, but I'm in a conversation with a couple of people the other day, and um, I find out this young lady in the entertainment industry, they're busy swapping knowledge about who's smarter in the entertainment industry. And inside of three minutes, when I finally get her talking, I find out she's Nigerian born. She grew up in the DC area. She grew up in a multicultural neighborhood. She She's in pre-production work with Netflix, but her undergraduate degree is history. Like, I promise you, I found out more about her in three minutes than anybody else did at that gathering, and probably more than most of the people that work with her know. And that her name in Nigeria, Nigerian means love. Like, I dig finding stuff out from people where they look. I talked to them for five minutes, and they go like, wow, I never told anybody about that. And if they know I'm a hostage negotiator, they're probably not going to give all that up. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably right. Are there any particular teachers that you can point to that have really impacted your growth? Because you're you're crazy knowledgeable in this world, and I don't even want to label this world because I don't even know what the world. I, I I feel like it's beyond emotional intelligence. Certainly beyond hostage. Neg- I, like I don't know what the it's not neuro linguistic programming. I don't know what this world that you're in is, but you seem like you've taken this information and have gone far beyond in your training. Is there anybody that, you know, I mean, I know you've written a book about it and we're going to link up to, you know, to your book to make sure that everybody gets it. But if somebody really wants to get this level of knowledge, where do they go to learn this stuff? Yeah. Well, you know, there's probably uh, these days, there's, there's a lot of great sources, you know, Stephen Kotler's stuff on tapping into flow. Uh, the rise of Superman. I find that I found that really insightful. You know, I'll pick up bits and pieces from different places. I got a mental block for the moment on the guy who wrote both the Culture Code and the Talent Code. Coil. Yeah, Daniel Coil. Mm, amazing. Both both of them are incredible. Yeah, awesome stuff. So you know, I, I like I like picking up a lot of stuff here and there. I share my co-author with Keith Ferrazzi, who wrote back in 2005, Never Eat Alone. Yeah. You know, there's stuff there. Jim Camp's book, Start With No, from 2002. You know, I pick stuff up there. Uh, These days, I can't read enough. I'm I'm, I'm what I would like to say, the the Elon Musk, Mark Cuban style of thinking where you got to read, you got to read, you got to read. Somebody's going to pass you if you don't read. You're going you're gonna to get left behind. You got to stay on the edge. And so I'm trying to pick up as much as I can. Farazi is incredible. He was my partner at a uh, Tony Robbins event uh, about 10 years ago. He's a great guy. Yeah, and he's got such insight. 
I, you know, I love hearing him talk about what he does because he's, he's so smart. All right. So I want to switch gears with you. The show is called Work Hard, Play Hard. And the work hard part of the show is about just that, talking about different things that people do. And maybe people, maybe there's an insurance salesman listening who can take some of these techniques and uh, lead his team a little bit better with it. But in life, there's two sides, right? There's the working and there's the playing. And I find as I'm getting older that uh, people spend a lot of time on work and not enough time on the other parts of their life. You know, most entrepreneurs are super driven and they just don't take the time. So I want to ask you a couple of questions on some areas that are outside of work for you. If you could spend a month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? Wow. It'd be a, it'd, it'd be a toss-up from a couple of places, like Africa, maybe. Because mm. I, like, I like exploration, travel, vacation. So like if I can go someplace and with all, my only plans are when I'm going to show up and when I'm going to leave and then just completely discover that place, then I dig that. So I would, I can do that in New Jersey because the world is fascinating if you let it be, or I could do it in Africa or I could do it in New Zealand, but it'd be something along those lines. It's interesting. I just, um, you know, the travel guy, Rick Steves, right? You heard, yeah. You, yeah. So he just did a, an episode um, with a French guy and it's the concept you'll love. It's called philandering. And philandering is basically the, the exactly what you described. You go to a place and you have absolutely no agenda at all. And what unfolds is so much reach, richer and deeper than if you said, you know, Monday, we're going to go to Louvre. Tuesday, we're going to go to the Eiffel Tower. The experience is radically different because those expectations are gone. So I love that idea. Yeah, it's, it's, it makes all the difference in the world. You, know, you, 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 might, you might not get five feet and discover something awesome. Yeah, it, that's exactly right. What's the one thing that's rocking your world right now that has nothing to do with work? Oh, wow. It's tough, right? I don't know because, see, my work is so much fun. Uh-huh. I get so immersed in this. Yeah. My son is my business partner, so it, it doesn't separate it that much from work, but seeing him grow as a human being, as a dad, and thinking that I've had a part of that and that I still, I'm still part of that as a father, I mean, to me, that's super cool. Yeah, it is really cool. How much time do you take off to recharge and refocus per week, per year? What's that look like for you? I got to do daily recharges in 5, 10, 15-minute incre- increments throughout the day. Mm-hmm. And then there's less of a need to recover on the weekend. I find my weekend to be a lot more enjoyable because the week hasn't exhausted me. What's a recovery block look like for you? There might, there might be a 10-minute sort of gratitude meditation breathing exercise that I picked up from Tony Robbins. Mm-hmm. There, I, prob- you know, I, I start my day with a gratitude journal. I start my day with positive music. Mm-hmm. I, I know that if I take a, a walk, a uh, half hour, 20 minute walk in the middle part of the day in the sunshine, which is one of the reasons I like being in Los Angeles is because there's frequently sunshine here. Oh, you live in LA. Yeah. That's cool. We're moving there next year. I live in Atlanta now. We're moving to Manhattan Beach. Very nice. You're tired of the humidity, huh? I'm t- you got it right. <laughs> that didn't take long. <laughs> <laughs> if you had all the time and the money in the world to pursue a hobby or a recreational activity, what would it be? And why, and and maybe it could be 
what's the one thing that you always wanted to learn but just haven't gotten around to yet? Ah, two completely different questions. Okay. I'd probably do mountain climbing. Interesting. Why? Because it it's you know requires such focus. It's a mental and physical challenge simultaneously. And what about the one thing you've always wanted to learn but haven't gotten around to yet? You know, I fantasize at going back to the guitar and learning how to actually play it well. Do you know that's the most common answer for that question? Wow. It's really interesting. I have no idea why, because I have no interest in learning the guitar. <laughs> but it is the most common. That and surfing is the next one. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people talk about their morning routine, but I'm kind of interested in what your wind down evening routine looks like. Do you have any routine there? Glass of wine, read a book, take dog for a walk, anything like that? No, the, um, uh, the, the smartest thing that I've found to unwind is, is to actually try to get a couple things done that I'm worried about in the evening. And somehow the relief of taking it, I sleep better. If I just take, take a small piece or chunk out of the last couple hours of the night out of stuff that's bothering me, then it doesn't bother me as much. You mean like with work or just anything? It would usually be a work-related thing. Like if there's something I'm, I'm, you know, I if I if uh, you know I got an elephant to eat, as they say, you know, how do you eat an mm-hmm. elephant one one bite at a time? Mm-hmm. If I could take a couple bites out of that elephant in the evening, hey, I relax more. It's easier for me. Have you ever read The Power of Full Engagement by Schwartz? No, sounds that's your, interesting. That's your next book. He did research. You are going to freaking love this book. He did research on high performers. He started with athletes and then he moved into entrepreneurs. And he found that you can go about two hours and 45 minutes with having high cognitive function. And then you need 20 minutes separation between the two as opposed to forcing your way through. So every high-level performer, he studied Jordan and all kinds of people, they can go about two hours, two and a half hours at the outside, and then they have to have some kind of reset, whether it's listening to music, walking around the block, you know, doing a stupid dance, whatever, whatever you do, but it has to be completely different than what you're doing. It's the only way to get the power of full engagement. You'll, you're going to love this book. It's, it's Yeah, great. it's awesome. Yeah, it's great. Okay, last round. How am I doing so far? Am I, am I, are my points good? Am I, am I in final, final jeopardy now? You have 37 points so far and you need 50 to win. So we're getting close. <laughs> okay. What would you, and these, this rapid fire is answer as quickly or as slowly as you'd like. It's basically a first thing that comes to mind round. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Being loyal. What's one of the things you're afraid of now? I, the same thing I've always been afraid of. I've always been afraid of letting my fears get in my way, like having some sort of hesitation, you know, being scared of the bully. I think I read a, uh, I wish I could find it word for word, a saying when I was in my 20s, you know, the great bully of life when we finally get the courage to tug on a bully's beard and find out it was fake. Mm, I never heard that. That's so good. What keeps you up at night? You know, somehow if, if I really, what might bother me, if I failed to be there as a human being for the people that are important to me in my, in my world. What's the one thing that you probably should throw out, but you never will? Oh, you know, I got, I got like some old suits (laughs) that look good 30 years ago, (laughs) but I, you know, I can't spare, you know, bear to get rid of. 
All right, two more questions. If you had to give a TED Talk on nothing that you're known for, nothing that you speak about, and it could be on anything that you have a passion for, what would it be? Mountain climbing. Interesting. All right, last question. Change it up a little bit. Ask, what one question do you most want to ask me? What have you gotten out of the real insights from these interviews? I mean, what's jumped out at you? What's been a game-changing thought? Having conversations like the last 10 or 15 minutes that we had in this interview allows me to know you as a person and how you think about things. And once I, you know, once I understand the work that you've done and, you know, the different interviews that I've heard on different podcasts, you know, I'm interested in you. But to really understand the guest, I have to ask them questions outside of what they're known for and questions that take them off autopilot that cause them to think about things a little bit deeper so that my so that me and my audience can get to know them a little bit better so the thing that blows me away or the thing that I get out of it the most is to realize that as sexy and as amazing as your life has been as a hostage negotiator you're just a dude you're just a regular guy that is not much different than most of the people listening and you're just as hungry as everybody else. And at the end of the day, you know, we're dominant in one thing, but once you get past that one thing, we're all interested in other things. And I I don't know if that answers the question, but that's how I see it. No, it's really interesting that, yeah. I mean, and particularly uh, get them off autopilot. It's a tough thing because that's what everybody wants to hear, right? Everybody wants to know about the hostage negotiation and the kidnapping and, you know, but, you know, you've only, you've been asked the same questions 20 million times. I can't ask you all new questions because people who don't know who you are need to know about you. So I have to go into that. But once that's done, I want to get to know you. I want the people who are listening to get to know you in a way that's just different. And sometimes it takes a little balls to ask questions because people could tell me, you know, go mind your own business. <laughs> but I got you for the, I got you for the hour. We can always edit it if you don't like it. <laughs> well dude this has been awesome i want to respect your time i know we got started a little late for technical problems that were on my end so um do you have any final words suggestions or an ask for the people that are listening yeah man well look if if you want more of our stuff and you want it for free subscribe to our newsletter i mean we got a negotiation newsletter we put out it's short and sweet comes out once a week and you can send a text message to sign up the newsletter is the edge like I said, Tuesday morning, short and sweet. Send a text, the words FBI empathy, but all one word. Don't let your autocorrect make it two words. No space in there. FBI empathy, one word to the number 22828. And that's 22828. Send FBI empathy, one word. You get a text box back. That newsletter is a gateway to everything we have. It's gateway to the website, everything. It's a best resource and it's free so absolutely absolutely love it thank you so much chris for taking the time and i can't wait to see you at one of your keynotes my pleasure brother thank you for having me on all right thanks for listening if you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game 
or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.